This podcast is a production of the Johns Hopkins University Press. To learn more, please visit press.jhu.edu slash journals. Thank you for tuning in to this Johns Hopkins University Press podcast. My name is Brian Shea, and I am the Public Relations and Advertising Manager for the Journals Division. With media stories appearing almost every day on immigration and refugees, the topic can draw attention from a variety of academic disciplines. A collection of essays in a recent issue of Children's Literature Association Quarterly took on migration, refugees, and diaspora in children's literature. Philip Nell, the guest editor of the issue, joined us for a talk about how the essay tried to address the current state of affairs. Thank you for joining me today, Phil. Uh, tell me, your introduction talked a lot about your personal connection to the immigrant and refugee experience. How important was it for you to put together this special issue? Well, very important. I mean, you know, all scholarship is a record of the time in which it was written. And right now, we are morally obligated to respond to the white supremacist kleptocracy that's currently dictating U.S. policy. And since I'm a children's literature person, I think about questions through children's literature. And so, yeah, we, we have to respond. You, you can't be alive right now and be silent. Or you can be alive and be silent. But to be silent, you would have to also silence your conscience and silence your humanity. And, well, the personal connection is that I am from a family of immigrants. My parents emigrated to the United States from South Africa the year before I was born. And that is why I have a U.S. passport and not a South African passport. Mm-hmm. And my other personal connection is that I am the descendant of refugees. The Nels were among those. Two million 17th century French Protestants, the Huguenots, mm-hmm. um, whose flight from persecution actually gave us the word refugee, which I did not know until oh. I began researching this issue. And today, my extended family, which would be, you know, the, the, the so-called nuclear family unit, plus cousins, uncles, aunts, live in five countries on four continents. So uh, we are we are a fairly diasporic group. And when I think about the theme of the issue, migrants, refugees, and diaspora, I see my own family. But, and it's equally important, and I can't stress this enough, that I also see my family in those who cause the displacement that the issue is addressing. My estranged father is an active Islamophobe, the very sort of person who supports a Muslim ban. And I recognize that my parents' ability to emigrate to the U.S. from South Africa has everything to do with them being white South Africans Mm -hmm. and not Kosa or Zulu or Indian. Uh, Their whiteness gave them access to a good education, gave them access to basic human rights. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very conscious of how much my own flourishing is built on all kinds of, uh, of white privilege and, of course, all the oppression that upholds that sort of privilege. So uh, I have a personal stake in that sense. But, but I would also say that you don't need a personal stake because good people don't stay silent while their government separates children from their parents, puts children in cages, enables the sexual abuse of those children. So I do have a personal connection, but I also don't think that matters. You, as long as you have a personal connection to other persons, yeah, you know, that's all you need. You talked about this in your introduction, too, that an issue like this, it can't really change things, but it's important to expose people, right, to get them to talk about these things and, and find ways to whether cope or educate themselves. Yeah, and I mean, doing nothing definitely doesn't change things, right? <laughs> Staying silent 
definitely won't change things. <laughs> right. But if you say something, you know, that there's at least a chance that what you say will influence the way somebody else thinks. You know, as I say, I since my field of children's literature, I think about how to respond to global crises via children's literature. Um, and yeah, um, exposing people to new ideas, new points of view is one thing that children's literature can do. As the writer Hisham Matar says, quote, all great art allows us this, a glimpse across the limits of the self. And children's books are a perfect place for that to happen. That's, that's, that's exactly the place where young people, um, both people of any age, can make that imaginative leap between our experience and others' experiences. But it's also important for the people who, who have had those experiences, right? I mean, right. Um, it, it, tells, it tells them that they are seen. And that is so important. Stories tell us who counts as human. And stories that distort or omit members of minoritized communities, in this case the, the diasporic, the migrants, the refugees, tell those children that either they're less human or via omission that their stories just aren't important. That's damaging. Right. Uh, and, and so these stories are obviously important for people who haven't had the experience to cultivate their own humanity. But they're also really important for the, for the, for the kids who are going through this right now. A story can tell you you're not alone. Mm-hmm. A story can tell you somebody understands. And, I mean, the experience of being a refugee is this sort of prolonged trauma that they're going through. And um, and a lot of kids are going through it. You know, we, we have a, a record a record high number of refugees in the world right now. 25.4 million people are refugees, and over half of those people are children. So, yeah, children's literature has to be one of the places where we respond. Mm-hmm. So. so I'm going to talk with us so far about the American situation and all that, but the issue covers a very global perspective. And how important is that for American readers and writers and researchers and just anyone to have that access and that um, understanding of what global children's literature is trying to teach people? Yeah, it's really important for people to understand that we are not the only country that is treating people inhumanely, mm-hmm. uh, right. although also that there are countries doing a much better job. But this is this is a, a global crisis, mm-hmm. and so, you know, in, in our special issue, uh, Deborah Dudek looks at how a contemporary Australian picture books challenge Australia's anti-immigrant rhetoric and policies. Uh, another contributor, Leila Savsar, looks at four novels of children who emigrate to other countries, from El Salvador, Haiti, Mexico, um, from Palestine, and, and she considers how those kids survive in a new country uh, via a kind of reflective nostalgia that helps them maintain a, a sense of cultural connection and resist the assimilation that some of the like, grown-ups in their lives insist that they do in order to fit in. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's just two uh, of the six essays in the special issue, but it, I, we cover all over the world in the special issue. And I think it's really important for people to understand that, and it's really important for us to address the needs of these children. Um, I mean, childhood is, is an inherently vulnerable state anyway, but when you're displaced, you know, when you're growing up in constant fear of being exploited, deported, bullied, that just makes you even more vulnerable. That that just amplifies the vulnerabilities that are already part of being a kid. We hope, we hope that contemporary children in reading books can grow up to make better choices than their elders, you know, if they read books that put better ideas into their heads. They can grow up to be people who care. Um, and, and what we read as, as children has an outsized 
influence on the people we become because we are so impressionable when we are children. We are very much selves in the process of being formed. So, you know, that that is that is the ideal moment to cultivate a humanity which we hope will stay with those kids throughout their lives and make them humanists, you know, make them people who who put people's experiences at the center of, of their concern. So, yeah. yeah. Kids begin to learn prejudice early in life, and, you know, children as young as two or three already know what advantages whiteness confers on them, for example, right? Or does not confer uh, if, if they're not white. So it's not like kids are innocent and, you know, we're going to should share with them books that will help cultivate that. No, no, not at all. But that, that is the ideal moment for them to have reinforced the notion that humanity has no borders mm-hmm. uh, because it doesn't. Now, this last question, you already touched a little bit on it. Uh, you learned the the etymology of refugee, <laughs> um, something new. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't realize that. What? I think I would have. What else did you learn from I always I love asking editors this question because you know you come in from a topic and you you have the idea and you have where you're coming from but then you get submissions and you probably find things you didn't uh an, a point of view you didn't expect or something like that so what did you learn from putting this issue together Oh I mean so many books that I I knew nothing about right. you know Ukrainian children's literature that I knew nothing about for example I mean there were a few books that I knew but Almost all the literature discussed here was entirely new to me. The communal aspect of putting together this special issue was was encouraging, was hopeful. You know, uh, whether you're marching for the rights of immigrants or editing the work of people who understand that human rights are universal, uh, you feel that you're part of a community, part of a bigger community of people who care. I don't know that I can call it something that I learned exactly, but but that was one of the really affirmative experiences of editing the issue is that I, I felt that I was among other people who who care. And I think at at times like this, that sense of, of community of people with a conscience, you know, mm-hmm. uh, that's just uh, that's just so important. Right. Um, it's so important to know to know that you're not alone. Um, and I know I'm not alone, right? <laughs> right. I mean, but you you feel that more acutely right. when you are having conversations editorially with other people who in their own countries, um, in their own ways, are invested in the same sorts of uh, issues that you are. And, and that's, uh, that's a beautiful thing, and, and I hope that the issue is able to, to carry some of that community and some of that care out into the world and, and maybe give people some some ideas that they can use in, in their own classrooms. Right. That's a good way to end the positive notion of spreading the word and, and, and helping people. I appreciate you putting this issue together, first of all, and then taking some time to talk to us about it, and hopefully it will uh, we'll spread some good into the world. Hey, thanks. Thanks for um, putting me on the podcast. Thank you for listening to this Johns Hopkins University Press podcast. Please visit press.jhu.edu slash journals for more information.